Hello and welcome to the RCP Medicine Podcast with me, Dr. Amy Burbridge. I'm an acute physician working in Coventry. And hi, I'm Akonesara. I'm a rheumatology and GIM registrar working in Southeast. Welcome to the podcast, Akon. So I'm going to hand it over to you to start. Okay, thank you very much. Um, so I'd like to introduce you to the case of a 22-year-old man who um, you see in the acute medical take. So he... Um, comes in with a two-month history of abdominal pain and diarrhea. Okay. okay, so he says this started two months ago when he was on holiday with his friends. So they decided to travel around South America um, and enjoy themselves, eat various things. His friends didn't get diarrhea, but that's when he started to notice it. He thought that was just gastroenteritis mm-hmm. and um, so kept hydrating himself as you do. Returned back to the UK, but his diarrhea continued and has persisted for several weeks now. So we decided to come into A&E. What sort of questions would you like to ask him? So um, he's 22 years old. He's got abdominal pain and diarrhea. Has the abdominal pain and diarrhea been continuous for those two months or does it come and go? So he said initially it came and went, Mm -hmm. but now it's been more persistent over the last six weeks. And he thinks it's actually getting worse rather than better. It's kind of watery, but in the last two weeks, he's noticed this particularly worse than the first few weeks he had them. Okay, so I'd first of all like to find out what he means about diarrhea. How many times a day is he opening his bowels? Is it one to ten times a day? Um, Is it liquidy? Is it well-formed? Does it float on the surface? Does it flush away properly? Is there any blood? Yeah, so he says that's what he's noticed the last two weeks. There's actually been blood. It's been watery. Um, It was kind of like porridge, he says, when it first began. Mm -hmm. And then it became more and more watery. Now it's watery with blood. And he's going every single day, sometimes up to six times a day. And is the blood mixed in with the stool or is the blood on the paper when he wipes or is it in the pan yeah so he says it's mixed in okay um and in fact in the last two days he's had blood almost every time he's gone to the loo okay is he waking at night to open his bowels yes in fact he is he normally sleeps through the night and Mm -hmm. this time well in the last few weeks he's been waking up to open his bowels at night time okay so that's very concerning yeah if you're if you're getting up at night to open your bowels that's always a a red flag sign and that's very worrying yeah has he had any constipation at all Um, he doesn't say he says he's not had any constipation he feels the need to go to the loo quite a bit of the time and not a lot comes out so he has this urge goes in and doesn't have much that comes out just more blood or water okay and from the abdominal pain perspective, I'd want to explore that a little bit more. So is the abdominal pain all over his abdomen? Yeah, so um, he says it's more on the left side. Is it crampy? Yeah, it's usually crampy, usually just, and it urges him to go to the loo. It gets a little bit relieved once he does go to the loo, but it's often, it remains at a low level um, quite a lot of the time. Does anything make the pain worse? So he said... When, when he eats, he feels like his food is going right through him. So um, that I guess that makes it worse, he says. The abdominal pain and the diarrhea gets worse with eating, but nothing else really. Okay. Has he tried anything for the pain and the diarrhea to try and stop the diarrhea? Yeah, so he did. He tried Imodium mm-hmm. to begin with because that's what his mates asked him to do. 
didn't really make much of a difference, okay. really. Pain relief for the pain? Yeah, so paracetamol has been helping with the pain. He's avoided taking ibuprofen because he's not been eating as much as usual. So he's really just stuck to paracetamol. Okay. He says the pain isn't excruciating. He's able to walk around the house. He sort of isn't, um, when you see him, he isn't bent over in pain. But he does have some abdominal discomfort. Any indigestion? No indigestion, no. Okay. Has he lost any weight? So that's a very good question, especially for someone who's been having diarrhea for six yes. to eight weeks. Um, so although he hasn't weighed himself, he has noticed his clothes are loose. He's had to tighten his belt um, as well. So that's, that's something that's particularly concerning for him. Has he had any fevers? Um, he hasn't checked his temperature, mm-hmm. but that is something you certainly do when you're assessing him. So after you finish taking his history mm-hmm. and examining him, that's something to look at. And in fact, when the when you see his OBS chart, um, after you've finished examining him, you notice that he has a mild fever of 38. Okay. Has he had any night sweats? No, no night sweats at all. And how's his appetite? Oh, his appetite's terrible, simply because he feels it goes st- straight through him when he eats. Okay. Um, so apart from the abdominal pain and diarrhea, bit of a fever that was picked up on examination. Yeah. Um, has he had any problems with the urinating? Because if he's very dehydrated, has that been a problem? Yeah, so he's been drinking loads. So he's actually tried to keep on top of the diarrhea and try to drink every time he's had his bowels open and, and in between because he's not had much food. So he's keeping on top of it. He's not very dehydrated, um, he thinks. He's passing urine as normal. Is he vomited at all? No vomiting at all. Okay. Did he ever vomit when he was in South America and he had this diarrhea? Yeah. So no, he didn't really, um, which he expected to because he thought he had gastroenteritis. Mm-hmm. So he expected to have some vomiting, but actually never did, just the diarrhea. What are your thoughts at the moment? <laughs> so... It could, so he's been to South America. I'm not sure whether that's a red herring or not. Um, Because obviously in South America, he's been traveling, he's been eating maybe some different foods to normal, been exposed to drinking water, which may have been different to normal for him. Yeah. So I would want to rule out an infective cause of the diarrhea. Absolutely. So I'd certainly want to think about some of the infections that he could have picked up. Also, I'm just going to mention here HIV. Not making any assumptions, he's been traveling. Sometimes um, seroconversion can present with diarrhea. So I'd certainly want to do a HIV test quite early on in the um, history, in the, sorry, in the um, investigations. Bloody diarrhea, I'd want to be thinking about inflammatory bowel disease. So we've got ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease would also be something um, that I'd want to think about. Other things... So yeah, that, that does bring you nicely to investigations because you've, you've come up with quite, um, quite good differentials because those are what I was thinking when I saw this patient. Um, you'd want to rule out infection. It does help to know that none of his friends had similar symptoms. Um, so, but it would be worth sending a stool sample to check for any infective causes. You also mentioned that it was watery and porridgey. So I guess... I mean, you're not going to get cholera, are you? But that's what they tend to get. Yeah. Ricey, watery. Um, but again, that would be more acute and would probably be a lot earlier on in the, the history rather than two months later. Yeah. 
the same for um, sort of salmonella and a lot of the other ones as well. I think it's a bit too prolonged for that now. It is. By this point, you're thinking this has gone on far too long, mm. which is why he's still obviously seeking medical help. So whilst you think about infective causes and certainly want to exclude them because they can then go on to, to become more severe and, and cause some inflammation in the bowel, sure. But in what you want to make sure you don't forget, uh, and I guess the most important thing um, to investigate is inflammatory bowel disease. Absolutely. Just going back to the history, did he have any, I'm sort of thinking about extra articular manifestations now of inflammatory ah. bowel disease. So has he noticed a rash? No, he hasn't, but that's an excellent question. So what kind of rashes might you expect in someone who's had prolonged diarrhea? So depending on the cause of the prolonged diarrhea, so if it was um, an inflammatory bowel disease, you could get erythema nodosum which is a uh, paniculitis. So it's sort of inflammation of the fatty tissue within the dermis of the skin. Um, and that's often on the legs and the lower legs. Quite tender, painful red lumps. Pyoderma gangrenosum is also a possibility. That's more like a sort of a necrotizing ulcerative type of rash that you tend to see. I've seen it on the abdomen in some patients and I've also seen it on the legs and in the arms. So that can happen anywhere. You can also... Just thinking about another condition actually with diarrhea is um, celiac disease. Yeah. So um, the possibility um, is the rash that you get with celiac disease. And it's completely slipped my mind what that rash is. Dermatitis hepatiformis. There it is. (laughs) So, yeah, sorry, just came to me. So, so So that would be a rash around the abdomen as well and around the umbilicus. So I'd look for that. Um, Also, I'd look for arthritis. So I'd want to ask questions about small um, joint arthritis, um, any pain in the ankles, and also some um, spondylitis as well, some back pain, and eyes. So they can often get red, painful, sore eyes, a uveitis or an iritis. Absolutely. Um, And when you examine him, what you do notice is that it does look like he's slender. It does look like he's lost weight when when his body habitus is looked at in proportion to his clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, but he looks relatively well. He's very young and this is fairly acute. Um, apart from weight loss and, and the temperature, you don't notice very much uh, in the initial examination. But you go on to examine his abdomen um, and he's a little tender on the left side mm-hmm. of his abdomen. No mouth ulcers, which is something you'd always also want to look at. So if mm-hmm. you're thinking Crohn's disease versus ulcerative colitis, mm-hmm. you want to sort of make sure that you do examine all these things. And as you mentioned, look out for the extra articular manifestations. Mm-hmm. There are no joint um, signs to find. Um, his eyes look absolutely fine. Like I mentioned, no mouth ulcers. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't really have any of these extra articular manifestations mm-hmm. as yet. Anything but he does... Not, not at this point, no. Okay. Um, but he does tell you that his sister suffers from an arthritis of some sort. He has an older sister mm-hmm. who was diagnosed with a, with a seronegative um, arthritis. He's not sure of the details of it. Okay, that's interesting. But that is good to know. Um, um, and particularly because, as you mentioned, there is an extraticular manifestation, but there is a genetic component to inflammatory bowel disease, mm-hmm. um, which is also linked to arthritis. Mm-hmm. To inflammatory arthritis. What about his observations? So you know you mentioned that his temperature and he's had a low-grade fever at around 38. So blood pressure? Blood pressure's fine. It's about 100 um, over 60. Um, 
probably bordering on the low side for him, but he has lost some weight. Um, his heart rate is 95. Um, so also higher than you would expect for someone who's normally fit and well, uh, but not high enough to be alarming really to you. Respiratory rate and saturation, saturations are normal. So at this point, if your main differential is an inflammatory bowel disease, how do you think you might assess how severe this gentleman is? Uh, I think, first of all, I'd need to think about the investigations that I need to do. So um, I need to rule in and rule out other conditions. So in my differential list, I have inflammatory bowel disease. I have infective colitis. And I guess down there, really, really low down there would be irritable bowel syndrome. But, yeah. I mean, that's more of a diagnosis of exclusion. And that's certainly not something that I'd want to be telling the patient he has until I definitely ruled anything out. So I'm going to start with some baseline blood tests. I'm going to do a full blood count and look for any signs of anemia, any signs of a high platelet count from cytosis, which can happen with inflammation. And also, does he have a raised white cell count? I'd want to do liver function tests to find out how the liver's working. There is an association between some of the inflammatory bowel diseases and primary sclerosing cholangitis. So I'd also want to have a good look at his liver function, particularly his alkaline phosphatase and ALT and AST. Using ease, I'd want to look at his kidney function. He's had lots of diarrhea, so I'd need to know whether he's dehydrated or not. I'd like to do an ESR, erythrocyte sedimentation rate, which is a marker of chronic inflammation. Some hospitals do plasma viscosity instead of ESR, and that's just measuring the same thing. CRP. Yeah. So C-reactive protein, see whether that's elevated or not consistent with more of an acute inflammation. I'd also like to do stool cultures. So I need to look at his stool and I need to send it off to find out whether there's any infection. So looking for any um, eggs, any cysts, any Clostridium difficile. And I wouldn't expect him to have Clostridium difficile because he hasn't had any recent antibiotic use, but it's always something that I'd be thinking of. Um, do an abdominal x-ray? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so I'm going to be looking for an abdominal x-ray to make sure he hasn't got any dilated bowel loops or anything that would indicate toxic megacolon, which is a very severe effect that can happen with inflammatory bowel disease. Um, I'd also... I think probably at that stage, those are my initial tests that I'd actually start off with. Yeah, so most of them um, are quite simple. You'll get results mm -hmm. within an hour or two at most. Mm -hmm. um, ESR might take a while, but CRP you'll certainly get within an hour. Yeah. Um, so those are the excellent ones to start off with. Stool cultures will obviously take a while, but yeah. you can make some decisions based on the initial investigations. Mm -hmm. So your blood tests, for example. So in this gentleman, say he, you find out he's a little anemic, his hemoglobin is 100. Okay. Um, so not low enough to need transfusion, but certainly is something that you are, you're, you know, you're sparked in, in noticing his mm -hmm. low his low hemoglobin. Um, you also notice a CRP, which is slightly raised at 20. Okay. But other than that, the rest of his blood tests are really unremarkable. I am a little bit worried about the anemia. I wouldn't yeah. expect him to be anemic. The CRP is not hugely. Abdominal x-ray? So his abdominal x-ray actually looks relatively okay. You don't notice, there's certainly no signs of toxic megacolon. Okay. I know that I'm not great at looking at abdominal x-rays. I can pretty much pick up and bowel obstruction, but I'm not entirely sure I'd be able to look for the more 
detailed things that you'd meant to see yeah. with automated colitis. So when they have the... Um, so there are some signs yes. like thumbprint. I can't remember that was it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which signifies inflammation of the colon yeah. uh, itself. So there's not a lot that quite often I find, I don't know about you, but I often find that abdominal x-rays aren't very useful, <laughs> a very useful investigation unless you're looking for something surgical. Absolutely. Um, and I, it's not something that we do very much. We don't. Anymore, no, we're quite used to looking at chest x-rays or, yeah. or, or joint x-rays, but mm. abdominal x-rays are a little bit... Um, reserved often for surgeons but thumbprinting is something that can be noticed and it's worth looking at pictures just okay. on google what thumbprinting looks like so you know what to look out for and that is a sign of quite severe colitis i guess another test that we need to mention here is fecal calprotectin yes so um there is a, a fecal calprotectin it's a substance that is released into the intestines when there's a huge amount of inflammation within the intestine and when you've got high levels of fecal calprotectin, just it's worth checking on the levels in your actual hospital laboratory for what's high because it may differ between some um, different analyzers. And if it's high, it indicates that it could be Crohn's disease and also ulcerative colitis. It's very good for ruling out other things like irritable bowel syndrome. It is. Um, so yeah. it's a very useful test to do. Um, so it's always worth adding that on as well and thinking about that. And nice guidance. Um, also recommends that they've got a very useful nice guidance which was um, published in 2013 about the fecal calprotectin updated in 2017 which says that it's recommended as an option to support clinicians with a differential diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease or irritable bowel syndromes particularly if cancer is not suspected and they've got risk factors for developing ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease so it's worth thinking about. Um, so those are excellent investigations to come up with. His, as I mentioned, his abdominal x-ray doesn't look too remarkable, uh, but you are worried about his anemia and his inflammatory markers slightly raised. Mm -hmm. Thinking about the next steps. So once you've seen him, you've assessed him, you're pretty convinced you're thinking this is an inflammatory bowel disease. Mm -hmm. um, how would you sort of narrow down your, your initial management? Would you are on the side of osteocolitis or Crohn's disease at this point, based on the investigation and his and his uh, presentation? Um, I think I'd speak to a specialist. So I definitely, at this stage, if I've got a gentleman who I think's got an acute inflammatory bowel disease, um, he's very, and he's unwell, he's, he's spiking a temperature, he's a little bit tachycardic, I'd speak to the gastroenterologist. Excellent, excellent yeah, choice. So in most hospitals I've worked in, in fact, in every hospital I've yeah. worked in, there's been a gastroenterologist on call at all times. Yeah. So there's usually one on at night, even when you, um, it's usually someone who's involved in GI bleeds, so someone who does an emergency scope, but they're usually very happy to talk about inflammatory bowel disease as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's why I definitely ask for some advice. Yes. Um, if there was nobody around. If there's nobody around though, <laughs> what sort of initial things might you do? Okay, so first of all, we need to stabilize the patient. So um, again, I'm always going to say it, but A, B, C, D, E. Obviously, we know that his airway is stable. His breathing's absolutely fine. Circulation, his blood pressure is a little bit low. So I'd want to get some intravenous access. When I'm doing that, I also need to mention, actually, we need to do a group and save um, and a cross match because he's a little bit anemic. Um, I'd also um, give him some intravenous fluids. So I'd probably give him some Hartman's solution yeah. to replace the fluid that he's losing through the diarrhea. 
Um, I check his glucose level. If he hasn't been eating or drinking, I want to make sure that he's not hypoglycemic. And I would um, then review. If I was convinced that this wasn't infective, I guess you could start to think about the use of intravenous steroids. Yeah. Hydrocortisone. If I did think it was infective, you could give antibiotics. Yeah. But again, um, in an acute setting, I would get some advice. If I couldn't get advice, um, I would utilize the information I've got. Yeah. Given the information I've got, it sounds like an inflammatory bowel disease. Given the um, other findings, and I would probably give him some steroids. And I, I think it's also important to see that when in doubt, because often people are torn between giving antibiotics if they think it's infective versus Absolutely. steroids if it's inflammatory. When in doubt, I don't think it's the worst thing to give both. Mm-hmm. I have been known to do that, um, right or wrong, but in patients who I really strongly suspect is inflammatory bowel disease, I give them steroids. If I think there might be an um, an effective component to it, I add on, on the antibiotics as well. Mm-hmm. So in a case like this, um, it's useful to think about the true love and wits criteria. Yes. I don't know if that's something you've encountered. Yeah, absolutely. So that helps to sort of look at the severity of, of ulcerative colitis. Mm-hmm. And in this patient, um, it's particularly helpful. The different categories which is used to measure severity are the number of bowel movements per day. So whether it's fewer than four, which is mild, between four and six, which is moderate, and six or more, which signifies severity or severe. Mm-hmm. Um, where there's blood in stools, so where there's visible blood, then it's severe. Where there's some blood, then it could be between mild and severe. Yeah. Um, and then pyrexia. So if there's a temperature greater than 37.8, mm-hmm. such as in this patient, that's classified as severe. A pulse rate greater than 90, that's classified as severe. And if there is anemia noted in a blood test, that is severe too. So oh. you're right to worry about his anemia. Yeah, um, and then the last thing, which is something that you may wait for a while, is the ESR, so erythrocyte sedimentation rate. If it's above 30, then that's classified as severe too. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's um, bordering on the, although he's only had about up to six bowel movements a day, so he doesn't classify as severe on that, but on the other criteria, he does. Mm-hmm. So this is someone that you would worry about mm-hmm. and would want to give, you know, give immediate treatment to and seek help okay. for. Absolutely. So initial management then in a patient like this would be to think about intravenous steroids. Mm-hmm. Um, this can be weight dependent. Um, if the patient is sort of greater than 75 kilos, I often just give 100 milligrams of IV hydrocortisone four times a day and whilst the patient's waiting to see a gastroenterologist. So in addition to your normal resuscitation that you've mentioned in the ABCD, mm-hmm. um, I would give steroids to start with. Okay. Usually, though, when a gastroenterologist does come in, they can step up treatment Mm -hmm. depending on where they think the lesion is. Um, What they might want to do is to do an endoscopy before they do that. Yeah, so it's either going to be a flexible signal endoscopy, although they're probably going to go ahead and do a colonoscopy, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. So um, sometimes it might depend on the resources they have Mm -hmm. um, and they want to get results quickly. and sometimes if they have a lot of time, they might just go on to do a full-on colonoscopy. Mm-hmm. In a patient like this who's opening his bowels a lot and not eating very much, mm-hmm. um, there isn't much need to fast them. There isn't much need to give them any enemas as they are already having Absolutely. diarrhea. Yeah. So the preparation for a colonoscopy will be very different to normal. Mm-hmm. 
A flexible sigmoidoscopy is very useful, will help to um, identify patients who have uh, proct proctitis, which is where the disease is limited to the rectum, or proctosigmoiditis, which is when it's um, limited to the to the rectum and the sigmoid colon. Mm -hmm. But if you want to look up for a more extensive disease, then mm -hmm. a, full, a full colonoscopy. But yes, you're absolutely right. Starting off as a flexible sigmoidoscopy, seeing the extent of the disease, and if you think it's more than that, then mm -hmm. progressing to a full colonoscopy. And just to cover what else you might find on a colonoscopy and ulcerative colitis, you may see rectal involvement, which we've discussed. It's often uniform involvement yeah. throughout the, um, the area which you're looking at. Then you may see a lack or loss of vascular marking within the area, diffuse erythema, so redness throughout. There might be some mucosal granulation or granularity that you can see, fistulas sometimes. Yeah, you can sometimes see fistulas. Absolutely. Sometimes it can be described, sometimes the mucosa can be described as sort of friable lesion because yes. they're so sensitive. Yes. When you touch them, they bleed because um, it's that inflamed. Yeah. Um, Biopsies, you made a biopsy as well? Absolutely. So that's what that's how you're going to get your definitive diagnosis, mm -hmm. really. Um, is by sending off a biopsy, really. Yeah. But once you've seen um inflammation of the colon or rectum, yeah. then you really want to start treatment topically as well. Okay. So in addition to the intravenous steroids, you would want to start five ESAs, um, as they call them. Five amino salicylate acids. Exactly. Yeah. Or amino salicylates. Yeah. There are different types of them mm -hmm. and they all have different names. Isn't something you have to memorize all of them, but it's good to know that there are five ASAs and just to know a couple of names. So sulfasalazine being one of them and mesalazine. And sulfasalazine is often the one that is used rectally, and sulfasalazine is often the one that is used orally. Yes. So mesalazine rectally, sulfasalazine orally. Yeah. Now, just to cover the side effects of sulfasalazine, particularly in men, what do you have to counsel them for before you start it? You have to, well, you have to find out whether or not they're planning to have children. Absolutely. Why? So it can affect sperm production. Yeah. So it's really important that before you start sulfasalazine that you counsel them on that. Not in everybody, and women don't often get the same associated um, infertility problems, but certainly in men that can happen. Yeah, you definitely want to think about that in a 22-year-old, um, especially if he's going to be treated for a long time. Absolutely. Um, so in patients who don't have as severe a disease as the whole colon involvement, because mm -hmm. as you rightly mentioned, sometimes you can, you can have involvement in segments of it, continuous yeah. segments, but sometimes it can be the entire colon. If it's in, a, in an area where you can just use topical, um, mesalazine, for example, azacol, um, that would be really useful for the patient. So you can use PR, azacol to treat mm -hmm. um, that patient uh, and they might not need to go on to have extensive oral treatments as well. But for this gentleman, you probably want to think about treating him as um, as quickly as possible, but also as, as, as much as possible yeah. um, to prevent other complications. Mm -hmm. So th those are the initial treatments. There are some patients who... Are, with whom using steroids is contraindicated. Um, so in patients like that, using IV cyclosporin would be something that you would want to use. Um, but I would just leave that to the gastroenterologists to do because they would have to counsel the patient on it and, and monitor for, um, for side effects and so on.
And cal- cyclosporin is a calcineurin inhibitor. Yeah. So it can also affect the immune system as well. It can. So just be cautious that Absolutely. you can have some sort of a little bit of immune suppression. Yeah. So what happens then if they've been on their steroids may or their cyclosporin because they weren't able to take their steroids and it's been 72 hours and there's been no response? Okay, so that's when you really start to worry. So... At this point, it would be a multidisciplinary team that would be involved in the patient's management. Mm-hmm. So you'd have to have a discussion. Um, so the gastro team, the endoscopists, and the surgical team would have to have a discussion with this patient mm-hmm. um, about whether or not to step up treatment um, and whether or not to consider surgical intervention. And that was obviously using the patient as well and making sure that you put the patient at the middle of those yeah. discussions and making sure it's a patient-centered what about infliximab? Right. So, Where is um, that going? at this so at this point, really. Yeah. Um, so it's nice that you brought that in. Um, so starting infliximab in a patient like this in an acute severe case mm-hmm. is a reasonable thing to do. Again, yes, it is reserved for gastroenterologists to do, mm-hmm. um, but that will be a, a very reasonable thing to do, and does um, does kind of promote remission mm-hmm. of disease. What must you do before you give infliximab? Because we know that it's a biological therapy, right. it's a monoclonal antibody. As a rheumatology trainee, you've probably used lots of infliximab. We have. So before you go ahead and give infliximab, what must you check in? So you need to do your screening. Yes. What's so um, blood test screening, for, for example. So this patient's who you're going to immunocompromise yeah. uh, with infliximab. You want to make sure they already don't have a condition that is an immunocompromised condition. So you've already done your HIV test mm-hmm. when the patient f- first came in, but you want to also make sure you do tests for hepatitis B and C. Mm-hmm. The other thing you want to do is uh, make sure they don't have latent TB. Yeah. Um, so a chest X-ray and a TB early spot. So I usually do both okay. just because I want to be absolutely certain. And that's from a previous experience of a patient going on to develop TB when we started infliximab. So um, I just like to be very safe in that way. Mm-hmm. So that's what you'd want to do in this patient before starting it. What about herpes varicella zoster testing? So I don't tend to do that. Mm-hmm. I know that immunocompromising a patient does put them at risk of mm-hmm. triggering, say, um, a varicella zoster or herpes simplex infection, but I don't tend to do that, do you? When I was a rheumatology trainee, all those many moons ago, um, some clinicians or consultants I was working with at the time did and some didn't. So um, it was very unclear, if I was being honest. Um, So if I'm being honest, I did it because I tended to err on the side of caution. Um, But again, it's always worth just checking the local guidance. Yeah, so check the local guidance is, is, is the right thing to do. Yeah. I do wonder that when they did that, did they then vaccinate the patient? Absolutely. Okay, so it's quite useful to do then. Yeah. So, um, so there you go. So that's uh, treatment of this gentleman. Mm-hmm. Hopefully he did get better within 72 hours mm-hmm. and you didn't need to. Mm-hmm. But if you did need to, you'd need to uh, refer him to surgical team for possible um, surgical intervention. So they might need to resect that area to prevent um, further complications, really. Okay, absolutely. Okay, so anything else that we think we need to mention with ulcerative colitis? And how can how do we know that this wasn't Crohn's disease? 
Yeah, so talking about the difference between UC and UC being ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, there are several differences. They're both in the same family of inflammatory bowel disease, but the differences lie in, in the areas that's involved. So Crohn's disease tends to affect any part of the GI tract from the mouth to the rectum. So they tend to get ulcers, um, they tend to get fistulas, really anywhere in the GI tract. Um, and they also tend to have skip lesions. So lesions have gaps between them and the gaps are healthy mucosa. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas when compared to ulcerative colitis, there aren't skip lesions in UC. Mm-hmm. Uh, they tend to be continuous uh, and they can affect um, really the rectum and the colon. They don't tend to affect the small gut or the mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, although if you do get mouth, mouth ulcers, those are not those are sort of extra or almost extra mm-hmm. intestinal manifestations. Um, but yes, um, and, and that therein lies the benefit in a way, I don't know if I can use the word benefit of UC, is that if a patient has um, ulcerative colitis, they can actually be cured by removing the entire colon. Mm-hmm. So with no colon presence, there can't be any colitis, which is where the name comes from. Okay. And just to go over the microscopic findings of ulcerative colitis versus Crohn's disease, this is something that I know comes up in exams, um, particularly in um, membership and also probably some medical student exams as well. So if we look at Crohn's disease, so Crohn's disease, you often have very significant inflammation in the colonic wall itself. The submucosa will get thicker and it will widen and you will often get lots of lymphoid tissue within the submucosa, you'll get crypts as well. And it's these crypts that are very specific of Crohn's disease. And you will often get um, a lot of inflammation, a lot of plasma cells within these crypts, and it's called a cryptitis. I love that word. And then you can also get inflammation of the deeper layers as well. So we know that Crohn's disease is transmural. Um, although you've got the skip lesions, like you mentioned, but where it does happen, it's throughout the whole of the layer of the bowel. And you will also have the very classical presence of non-caseating granulomas. And that's a specific thing that is classic in Crohn's disease. Yeah. When you're looking at ulcerative colitis um, and what you might find in ulcerative colitis on the, um, on the um, colonoscopy, oh, sorry, on the biopsy, we mentioned distal disease. Um, which is correct. Um, you don't have those crypts, which we said. Um, you may have diffuse mucosal atrophy rather than just in the submucosa. You don't have the granulomas. So that's the clear classic thing. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you for adding that in. Any other questions? Um, I'm just going to go back to anchor. Oh. <laughs> so I was well known when I was training to be semi obsessed with anchor or anti-neutral cytoplasmic antibody. Okay. Um, And it is known that about 70% of patients with ulcerative colitis will have a positive P-anchor. I actually didn't know that. Mm. And there's also another one called anti-saccharomyces cerevisiae antibody, or ASCA. And that will be positive in around 70% of patients with Crohn's disease. Hmm. To be honest, it's not something that I routinely test for, but you know, it's always worth mentioning. So complications then, what, what complications can you get with ulcerative colitis? So complications, what you really want to avoid is um, uh, megacolon. Yeah. 
Um, and that occurs when the the bowel wall is so inflamed that it essentially um, it causes megacolon, which means large colon. Mm-hmm. Um, this can then rupture and can 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 be fatal. Yeah. So you really want to avoid that. You want mm-hmm. to make sure that the patient the patient is monitored very closely. Um, if they need repeat X-rays to see if there is any ch- any changes in their condition, um, then do do that. Um, but that's the main worrying um, complication. Okay. Uh, yeah. And there's infection, I guess, with cytokine yeah. virus can occur in some people. Yeah. Um, there are also complications of treatment. So, as we mentioned, the immunocompromised patients do are more susceptible to infections. Mm-hmm. Um, there are patients who uh, can be very difficult to treat, and you might have to step up their treatment from oral, apart from oral and, and topical, mm-hmm. to have um, even more treatment and thinking about all the other extra articular manifestations as well, having to address those. Okay. Um, and the social and psychological factors of the disease. Yeah. And also, patients with a long-standing colitis get an increased risk of colonic adenocarcinoma. They do. So we need to... So although you're not worrying about it in a 22-year-old who's acutely presenting, this is something that if... Um, not just those left untreated, but I think it, having UC anyway does increase your risk of having yeah. a carcinoma. Absolutely. And we've already mentioned primary sclerosing cholangitis. We did, yeah. Um, and strictures as well can occur. Yeah. So these patients, even when they're well, need to be seen often in the gastroenterology clinic. Yeah. Um, they'll need to have monitoring of their liver function tests. Mm-hmm. They'll need to also have um, monitoring of their gut um, through colonoscopies as an outpatient. Yeah, absolutely. So who's going to follow these patients up? Hopefully the gastroenterologists. Yeah. They, they're obviously very interested in, in these patients. Mm-hmm. Um, but the GP also needs to be well aware of what's going on with the patient because mm-hmm. they'll often see them when they're first flaring mm-hmm. and would need to know what to do. Yeah. So it's very useful to have a plan for the patient mm-hmm. so that they don't sort of present to A&E sort of every month because mm-hmm. their disease is not under control. If they needed to, fine, mm-hmm. but you want to tr- see if you can prevent that yeah. through patient education, um, family education, mm-hmm. and a good contact with their GP. Yeah. There is often an inflammatory bowel disease nurse specialist as well, mm-hmm. who you would have their con- who the patient will have their contact number, they can contact Monday to Friday, mm-hmm. and they can ask any question really. So they'll go home with a wealth of knowledge about UC, but also so many more questions than they had come in with. Um, so having that direct contact with a, a nurse specialist, their GP, and having an open conversation uh, between the patient and their and their families would really help to manage the disease mm-hmm. very well. And also, um, if you're going to be starting somebody on long-term steroids, you obviously need to think about protecting their bones. Yes, I'm so- glad you mentioned that. Calcium, vitamin D. Yeah, so patients, um, we try not to put patients on long-term steroids because there are other alternatives. But if they have been on steroids for more than six weeks, if you're, say, on a weaning course of steroids, you really do want to start thinking about other protection. Mm -hmm. So gut protection, bone protection, um, and you need to obviously make sure that they're monitored for their eyesight, don't develop cataracts or... um, any other complications of steroids. So patients will be put on mm-hmm. um, a PPI. Mm-hmm. Um, I might not put such a patient on a bisphosphonate to start with, but yeah. that's something you think about long-term, depending mm-hmm. on how long they stay on steroids. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Fantastic. We've had a really good review there of ulcerative colitis. We've talked about the investigations that you do and how we manage them. We've talked about the differences between ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. We've talked about how you induce remission with steroids and possibly cyclosporine and infliximab. We've talked about when you've induced remission, how you maintain remission. So the utilization of amino salicylic acids, cyclosporine, azathioprine is a potential drug as well that can also be used. Again, this is always under specialist guidance. And just as an aside there, whenever you are going to start some DNA azathioprine, you must check their TPMT levels, methyltransferase levels. Because if they don't have any of these, you can't metabolize the azathioprine well and you can become very, very toxic. So remember that. Um, and we've talked about the use of, um, obviously, early colonoscopy and considering their development of other problems such as fistulas, strictures and malignancies is there anything else that you would like to add um just really take home message so patients who come in with uh bloody diarrhea you want to make sure that you've excluded infective but also considered inflammatory bowel disease (laughs) they can coexist uh, and it's often just just bear that in mind that they can coexist Um, early treatment is very useful um, and it's paramount to a patient like this who may look well. They often do look well because they're so young and it's gone on for just a relatively short period of time, six to eight weeks. Um, but that doesn't mean they cannot be severe. So if this patient who I've described, he's been walking around, he's been on holiday, but actually he's, he's getting worse. Um, um, so yeah, those are the main t- take home messages. So start early, start treatment early and involve the specialists as soon as possible. Cool, thank you very much. And just to recap, we used the Ulcerative Colitis Management Guideline, NICE Guideline, which is NG130, which was published this year in May 2019. If you wanted to go away and read about it. It makes a very good read and actually also talks about paediatric management as well. So for younger patients, um, we want to bear in mind that they'll be on steroids for a lot longer than, than you want them to be. Thank you very much. Um, thank you, Akon. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening to today's episode of the RCP Medicine Podcast. And we'll be back soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the RCP Medicine Podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcasts at rcplondon.ac.uk or you can tweet us at RCP London or at Amy Burbridge. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.